Let us pray. All glory, laud, and honor to you, O Christ, we sing. For whom the lips of children made great hosannas sing. May the praise that we bring with our palms and our voices this morning, God, honor you in our lives. May we remember your steadfast love. May we let it seep into our hearts so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our souls may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I would like to be down on the floor preaching with you today a little more free form and freestanding. As many of you know, I'm still recovering from a knee surgery. And for the sake of all my many mothers here in the congregation and in the choir, and for my dearly beloved spouse's faithful attention, I am standing up here so I have something to lean on. But I am walking down among you in spirit. The summer I was 17, I spent about eight weeks here on the East Coast, a Midwestern suburban boy, getting a little taste of what he wanted his adult life to be like. And I spent about a good solid week in two different parts in the great city of Manhattan, along with another hometown friend who was at that time a sneaky graduate student living up in Morningside Heights. One nice Thursday morning, we found ourselves in the lobby of Rockefeller Center, needling our way into the standby line for David Letterman's Late Show. Through some trickery of my friend, we managed to get a good placement so that we might be interviewed by Dave on television to be guest co-hosts for that evening's segment. We didn't make the cut. And you can't YouTube it. I only have a videotape of it. You can't watch it. But we were interviewed by Dave, but that's not the story. The story is we actually got to sit in and watch the rest of the show. And I remember on that August day, that Martin Short, the comedian, and Graham Nash, the singer-songwriter, were the guests, and they had stupid pet tricks that day. But I don't remember much of what was said. What I remember is the buzz of the crowd. About 150 or 200 of us crammed into this studio audience, in fact, a live studio audience, in front of the cameras with people to cue us when to applaud, when to laugh. And I was amazed because everything was heightened. It was like two, three, or four times louder than you might normally expect. We laughed harder and longer at the jokes than we normally would. We applauded more readily than we normally would. It stuck with me, and every time I'm in front of a group of people, I think about the moment and what heightens our sense when we're in a crowd. Now, on that particular day, I think it had to do with the fact that we were being broadcast out to millions of households in due time, and there was an elevated sense of what that was about. We were also in the presence of someone who was readily becoming an American icon of the late 20th and 21st century. And we may not have thought about this, but we were being put on the record for a taped show that encapsulated life in this country here in this day. And so we were all heightened and abuzz. 
The buzz lasted on the subway ride home and into the weeks that followed when the segment finally aired. You know what this buzz is like. If you're a sports fan, it happens every time you step into the arena. The big sense of space and that sort of tribal native urge to root for our own team. It causes us to do ridiculous, crazy, even stupid stuff. With the right amount of beer and testosterone, it can lead to violence or painting our bellies red or crimson or whatever color you want and bearing them on national TV. Or getting lost in the wave that goes around the arena. It's exhilarating to get lost in the crowd. We've seen it this past year with political rallies. Some of us saw with great fear and trepidation the sort of demagoguery that happened at some of the political rallies. And I can imagine, for those who just wandered in because they were curious, because they wanted to see a celebrity, because they had causes they were caring about, how they got caught up in the energy of those amazing crowds. Or, as some criticize on other sides of the aisle, the smugness and the overwhelming nationalism that swept through the convention floor. Even watching it on TV, you could get a sense of it. Many of us were at the Women's March down on the Common. I've never seen so many people crowded into such a space. I tried on my cell phone at that time to get a hold of Lindsay and Robert and my sister, but as many of you recall, all the cell lines were jammed. The only person I could get through to was a friend who was a part of the Jewish Relations Council of Boston who was hiding in her car on Beacon Street. I happened to look up on the fifth floor balcony of the King's Chapel Parish House and saw my good friend and colleague, Sean Fiedler. So I muscled my way through the crowd and made it up to his penthouse apartment where I got a better view of the crowd. And it's amazing as you see the rhythms and streams of people. People yelling up at us, is it even moving down there? People wondering where they were lost in the crowd. Many of us lost in that mass of humanity, and seeing many of the signs that we might have agreed with, and some that maybe we shouldn't put quite out there. There's something about getting in a big crowd that is, has an element of herd mentality. That's what sociologists and psychologists call it. When you get caught up in the group dynamic so much that you get a little lost in it. And I wonder about it in the crowd that Matthew is talking about on that first Palm Sunday, coming down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem with this guy on a donkey with a colt tied to it. Now you know how the herd mentality works in our everyday lives. Sometimes it can happen in a group that you travel in, perhaps at school or work or you're in, in neighborhood, some little rumor about an individual that might have a glint of truth about it, but actually is more damaging than helpful. And it spins around in the circles and the gossip and then into our minds, forever tainting that person in some way that may never be shaken or you see it in good ways, perhaps in the office poll where they want to have a secret Santa party. And if you're like me and try to be rather pragmatic, you think, why spend good money on things that people are just going to take to goodwill anyway? And yet you're committed because the boss wants you to. And you sign up and you send those little secret notes and buy the special little gift and you start paying attention to what the person likes and doesn't like. And you get caught up in the good feeling 
of shared sense of generosity. Herd mentality, crowd control, getting lost and caught up in it. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell said, collective fear stimulates the herd instinct and tends to produce ferocity toward those who are not regarded as members of the herd. Or the American General George Patton put it more simply, he said, if everyone is thinking alike, then someone isn't thinking. Now we don't know a lot about the specifics of the crowd that gathered that day to welcome Jesus coming into Jerusalem. The scripture keeps referring to this enigmatic third person plural pronoun, they. Most likely the people who had been inspired by his healing power up in the Galilee his thoughtful teaching, his charismatic compassion and bold preaching, people who wanted to be near him and in his vicinity, people who were receiving some kind of good news that they desperately needed and wanted to hold on to, they were going to make their way to Jerusalem with this guy to celebrate the Passover feast. And I imagine there was a large word-of-mouth crowd in Jerusalem that day, as Mekela read, it says that Jerusalem was all in turmoil, but I imagine there's some people who had gotten word, who had heard about him, but not encountered him directly and wanted to see if he was the real deal. You know, when we plan Palm Sunday and have this amazing throng of children and teachers and parents come down with the palms and we shout, Hosanna, and blessed is the one who comes, I have to say, for those of us who work in church, and come regularly, there's a little bittersweetness about it because we know how it's going to end up on Friday afternoon. There's been a tradition in the church for some time of on Palm Sunday reading the Passion story, the whole narrative, and shouting out along with our hosannas, crucify him, just so that all of us who don't make it to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday get a sense of how awful it really is. We say our all glory, laud, and honor on the lips of children who make these sweet hosannas ring. And we may miss it because it's important to remember that Holy Week isn't just about palm fronds and Easter eggs and bunnies or even really all about resurrection, even if that's where it ultimately ends up. It is about denial and betrayal. It's about kindness and decency in the midst of tyranny. And we will celebrate that here on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and a good again on Easter morning. Now, I wonder if you and I had been in either crowd, because scholars are pretty sure that the crowd that came on Palm Sunday is not the same crowd that was shouting crucify him later in the week. But I wonder if you and I might have just been on the sidelines, just not sure where we landed, just going to see how this plays out. You and I find ourselves caught up in the herd mentality all the time. And when we find ourselves in the midst of it, I think it's good to step back and ask ourselves with a good hard look, who am I really in the midst of this crowd? To whom do I belong? And who is it I want to follow? Who is it I want to emulate? Who is it I'm going to listen to? Now, most of you who know me know I'm rather broad-minded about who we can listen to for good advice. The Dalai Lama, the Buddha, Pope Francis, Oprah, Deepak Chopra, Dr. Oz, or Andrew Weil. I think they're all good. But when it comes to who we are ultimately following, 
the one in whom we put our trust and ultimate loyalty, the one who brings us together week in, week out to this place to sing songs, to pray prayers, to gather in this beloved community, to remember ourselves as one body. He's that scruffy, itinerant rabbi riding on a donkey with his toes dragging on the ground with a colt tied alongside. And he looks kind of foolish, actually, in that getup. It isn't glamorous. It isn't dignified by the world standards. At the other end of town that day, Governor Pontius Pilate is coming in with a full Roman processional of horses, chariots, gladiator uniforms, plumes, and spears. But this guy, the guy that we say we follow, comes in a much different form. He may even have a look on his face of how in the world did I get here? Somewhat bemused, fully aware of what's going to happen. You see, he doesn't care about how much money you have. He doesn't care about how many homes you have or how fancy they are. He doesn't care about our social status. He doesn't care what schools we went to or what GPA we have. What he cares about is our souls, that we are kind, that we practice justice and compassion as a regular part of every interaction we have, whether it's in the crowd or outside of it, whether it's on our own in privacy or out in public. He cares that we love generously and seek to increase the peace in ourselves and all those around us. He cares that we're willing to try and let go of our fear and anxiety if only long enough that we can simply live our lives abundantly and have the courage to speak up when necessary. The guy we're seeking to follow on that donkey later in the week is going to wash the feet of those who follow him, just like we'll see the Pope do this week. He's going to serve them a sacred farewell meal, just like we're going to do later this week. And then he's going to end up being denied, betrayed, and abandoned by some of those same people. And even in his final hours, he's going to give us some advice about how to live our lives. That actually when it's when we help the hungry and the thirsty and those in prison and those without clothing and those who are sick, that we're going to continue helping him in this life. This is the guy who, when he's hanging there on the cross, forgives the criminals on either side of him, giving them pastoral care right there in the moment. This is the guy who looks down at his mother and best friend and tells them to become a new family, just like he tells you and me every time we gather. This is the guy who, as he is breathing his last breath, recites the Psalms because they are embedded in his life and his soul. This week, one of you told me about a retreat you were on last weekend with a Jesuit priest from Cameroon meeting with some college students as they prepare to go on the Camino de Santiago in Spain later this year. And the priest told him his life story, which included being held at gunpoint with children he was protecting by soldiers. And he decided in that moment, if I'm going to die now, I'm going to die like a Jesuit, adhering to the principles of the Society of Jesus and knowing who it is I follow. Now the good news is that you and I 
will most likely never face those odds. That's what I pray for for you and for me. But you and I have opportunities every single day, whether we're going to follow this guy or get caught up in the herd mentality, whether we're going to be true to values that are the values of heaven or whether we're going to get it caught up in the worry and anxiety and stress and constant push to achieve in this life. So we get to choose this week which direction we're going to go in and where we want to end up next Sunday morning. I believe if we follow this guy, it will take us all the way to heaven and back again. Amen.